Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, we are grateful for this holiday that points our thinking in the right direction. Lord, help us to take a deep breath and to experience the peace that you desire for us, to focus our eyes on Christ, not just everything around this holiday. Lord, we thank you for family and friends and connections and get-togethers and all those wonderful things that are blessings. And Lord, I just pray that people will just appreciate you and appreciate your many good gifts and the people that you put in our lives. We ask for your uh, spirit to do his work among us this morning. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when I look around at kind of secular Christmas, there's a lot of fun things there. There's a lot of hunger. There's a lot of desire. Um, I think about a a German theologian back in, it was after World War II, and his country was uh, pretty devastated, and he had four small children, and they were very, very poor, and he said one of the heartbreaking moments was when he found his four children, and they had grabbed their mother's cookbook, and they were licking the pictures of the food in the cookbook, and sometimes I, I feel like Christmas has that effect. People are hungry They're hungry for God. They're hungry for meaning, for hope, for joy. They're hungry for uh, to be free. They're hungry for connection, and yet looking for it in lots of different places. And we've been practicing Advent. You just saw kind of the final version of it, and appreciate the family that did that. And Advent has been whispering to us for about a month now that Jesus is coming. But Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which the video touched on, but I want to read a little more than that, um, it announces his arrival. Now, Luke's gospel, which was also read, is more the perspective of Mary. Matthew's gospel, when it comes to the birth account, is more the perspective of Joseph. So let's look at this, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We just watched at 9 o'clock, those that came, uh, we had a a Christmas movie, and I appreciated how they portrayed some of the emotion and the drama of, of having her miraculous birth and no one really believing her not even Joseph. And their system of getting married was a little different than ours. It was, you know, the parents arranged uh, the marriages. And there was this year where they were considered husband and wife, but they did not live together. And, and the relationship had not been brought together physically. And she comes up pregnant in that year. Now, we know it's a miracle. We understand because we're we have the inside scoop. But poor Joseph... And her parents and the family aren't really quite buying that. As a matter of fact, it would be treated as 
with her being pregnant is that they could actually kill her because it would be viewed as adultery because they were husband and wife even though they had not come together yet. And so this is very serious, this story that we're reading. It goes on, verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And his name literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh or God delivers. And we see this name about 1,600 times in Scripture. So every time we see that name, we see that role of Jesus as Savior. We see him, you know, paying for our sins. We see him saving us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will continue, uh, will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is an Old Testament prophecy, the prophet Isaiah. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. When I look at this passage, I kind of think of a kaleidoscope with all the colors and the pictures, and there's a lot of meaning here. There's a lot to unpack. I just want to pull out a few uh, basic ideas. The first one is one that is hard for our secular culture, and that is the, the miracle of Jesus, the miracle that he is. Christmas is about the miraculous, and we have been you know, kind of soaked and marinated in this scientific worldview that doesn't allow for the miraculous. But I encourage you, at the very start of the Bible, we believe in a God who spoke and brought forth the universe. And so the miraculous is woven through the scripture, and it is part of God's relationship with his creation and with us. I think it's interesting, when you think about the miracle of Jesus, you really have to back up the tape Go all the way back, and it really, in a sense, starts with another miracle. This senior citizen couple, Abraham and Sarah, and they're told long after they could have children, long after years and decades of barrenness, that they're going to have a child. And while every child, in a sense, I think is a touch of the miraculous, this child in their old age was a full-on miracle. And they were given Isaac, and this child was the beginning of that line of the Jewish people and the people through whom the Messiah would ultimately come, through whom Jesus would be born. Matter of fact, and it might be a little boring to most readers, but right there in the beginning of Matthew, we see this genealogy showing us this, how God is working through history to bring forth this Messiah. While the story of Jesus arriving is a surprise to Mary and to Joseph, it's not a surprise to the Jewish people. Messiah has been, they have been waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries, been waiting for this one who was going to come and crush the head of Satan. Now, so it is a story of fulfillment that really actually even goes all the way further back into Genesis where when the fall of man, Adam and Eve, where they are told someone's going to come and crush the head of Satan in, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that first prophecy. And so this is an incredible thing. We look in Matthew one twenty three: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
I always feel a little sorry for Sunday school teachers of small children at Christmas time because, you know, what's a virgin? You know, that's the question you get from the little kid. Ask your parents. But anyway, but this promise, this prophecy shows up 700 years, even a little longer, uh, before Jesus arrives. And Jesus, God the Son, Christmas is about him coming to earth as a man. And he is not just any man, he is fully human, but the scripture is very clear in Colossians 2.9, it says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He is fully divine, he is God. Pastor Tony Evans calls him, he says, when I read this story, he said, I'm shocked we have deity in a diaper. That's kind of an interesting way to phrase it. But that's what we have here. We have God the Son taking off his divine crown and the prerogatives of deity and becoming a baby, accepting dependence, being raised by peasants. It is a remarkable thing that we believe. And it is the miracle of Jesus. The Nicene Creed says of Jesus that he was very God of very God and he was made man. They're trying to grab hold of the mystery of who he is. Notice how there's, there's some miraculous here in the sense that um, God steps in and saves Mary. Joseph was being gracious. He was going to try to uh, divorce her quietly Because if he publicly accused her of adultery, she could have been killed. But God intervenes, sends a dream, and and Joseph is guided by that. And he's very uh, obedient. I think he's a real hero to the story here. Now, Jesus is this unique person, fully God, fully man. And the ultimate proof of it is not just all the miracles he did in his life, although those are definitely evidence And the raising of Lazarus is one of the big ones. But it's predicting his own death and walking out of his own grave, the resurrection, that confirms it. And I love how Max Lucado said it, God became one of us so we could become one with him. So he could invite us into the family. So we could become his sons and daughters. And so when I look at this text, I see the miracle of Jesus. The second idea is I see the mission of Jesus. Matthew one twenty one: she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, the bad news of Christmas, which the secular celebration doesn't address at all, the bad news of, Christian, of Christmas is that we are broken, that we are rebellious people that we are sinners, that we're a bit of a mess. One author said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We have broken God's law. We have missed the mark on how to live well. We do not live perfect, holy lives. We are called to be compassionate and loving, and we are to be truth-tellers and promoters of justice, and yet all of us fall short. And so we have this sin status this status as rebels in the eyes of a holy God. And we all struggle with it to various degrees. I think of the little boy who wrote his Christmas letter to Santa, but he wanted to cover all his bases, so he wrote a letter to Jesus as well. So he wrote two letters. His letter to Jesus, he started out, he said, Dear Jesus, I just want you to know I've been good for six months now. 
And he leaned back and he thought about it. He said, I, Jesus knows that's not true. So he crossed out the six months and he put three months. And then he thought about that. He said, well, that's not true either. So then he went with three weeks. And then the, you know, the letter's kind of a mess. And at this point, he gets up, he goes over to the nativity scene that's in his parents' house, and he picks up Mary, and he sits down to write another letter to Jesus, and he begins that letter, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, we're all sinners, we're all rebels, there may be different levels to it, but we're all in the same camp. And when Jesus is on the cross, in essence, he holds up the mirror, showing us how dark and how severe and how dangerous sin is and the high price that had to be paid to free us from it, to forgive us for it, to break the chains that wrap us in it. And so Jesus volunteered to be the sacrifice to take our place. He redeems us, restores us, justifies us, forgives us, and he has come to set us free and to help us to be new people, to open our eyes to the truth, to heal from our brokenness and become whole and to experience peace and shalom. He does what King David didn't do with his son Absalom. Absalom did some terrible things and he comes back to the city and you know, David said, yeah, he can come back to the city. But for two years, he wouldn't go see Absalom. For two years, he, he didn't allow him to come see his face. And Absalom ends up rebelling against his father, the king. You see, the only one who could have fixed that relationship was David, and he chose not to. And the only one who could fix our relationship with a holy God is God. But he chose to because he loves us. And so Jesus, whose very name means God saves or Yahweh saves, he defines his mission. Multiple times he talks about it. Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man, which is a phrase he used to uh, talk about himself, came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. In Matthew 20, verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the price for all who are willing to come to him. Some have articulated this as we owed a debt we could not pay. Christ paid a debt that he did not owe. Or one of the most famous declarations of the mission of Jesus, it's found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, I love that word whoever, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Max Lucado, when he talks about the whoever in that particular verse, he says it it unfurls the banner of 316 for everyone, whoever unrolls the welcome mat of heaven to all of humanity, whoever invites the world to God. That person you think is unlikely, that person you think is out of reach, whoever can reach. The gospel is for them too. Love came down, and the mission of Jesus is to deal with our sinfulness. He knows us better than anyone, even your spouse if you're married, even your parent. He knows us perfectly and loves us deeply and passionately in spite of all that he knows. I love the encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospels. I think of Zacchaeus, the traitor, the tax collector, the outcast. 
And he is up in a tree and he's watching for Jesus and Jesus sees him and he says, look, I see you and I'm going to come to your house today. He offers him table fellowship, which may not be as meaningful in our culture, but in that culture, that was this incredible offering of acceptance. And the whole crowd, I'm sure, reacted. But Jesus came to deal with our sinfulness. I think of the woman at the well in Samaria. She's there at midday because she's had all these husbands who have rejected her. And she's living with a man. And the other women talk. And she doesn't want to be around them. And yet Jesus went out of his way to be at that well at that moment to have a conversation with her and to reveal to her that he was the long-awaited Messiah. I love that. The mission of Jesus is to deal with our sinfulness. The enemies of Jesus drag a woman caught in adultery in front of him. They're all surrounding her with stones and they're ready to kill her as it demands under the law. They're trying to put Jesus in a difficult spot because the Jews had no authority under Rome to execute anybody. And so if he signs off on that, then he's in trouble with the Romans. If he doesn't agree with the punishment, then they're putting him in opposition to the Mosaic law. What does Jesus do? He writes on the ground, and the scholars love to debate, love to come up with, love to imagine. What did he write on the ground? My favorite idea is that he, you know, looks at, like, points at one, writes his sins, points at the next one, writes his sins, points at the next one, writes his sins. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. But he gets up and he says, whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone. And I think the most beautiful sound in the life of that woman who was in that moment embarrassed, mortified, covered in shame, terrified for her very life, I think the most beautiful sound she'd ever heard in her entire life was the sound of those stones dropping on the ground. And the one person who had the right to pick up the stone and throw the first stone, who had no sin, chose not to. And he offered her grace and mercy and invited her to a new life. He said, go and sin no more. Elsie McFitzpatrick says this. She said, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe but more loved and welcomed than I ever dared hope. And that is part of the gospel. He knows it all and loves us still. This works because of what the theologians call the great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that's Jesus. He had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks at me or you, those of us who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he does not see all our sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the best possible mantle in the presence of a holy God. And we are treated like we are walking in that perfection. And so through Christmas and the cross of Christ, God has built a bridge for us to have a relationship with him. And the question is, will you walk across it? He offers us this salvation to anyone. God's dream is to see people from around the world of every tongue and tribe, every group, come to know him 
and experience him and be part of the family. I love the image in Revelation chapter five, verse nine, where it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy, they're talking about Jesus, worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. When we look at this mission, we see that it drives home the message that's in this particular passage as well. So the third idea is this one message of Jesus. Now, his message is complex, and there's lots of directions I could go. But in this passage, I love what it says in Matthew 1.23. It says this, that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of my favorite authors is Anne Voskamp, and she says of this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. She said, these are words with weight. These are words that point to who Jesus is. He is fully divine and that he comes alongside of us. And Voskamp goes on to say, the mystery so large becomes the baby so small. An infinite God becomes infant. The giver becomes the gift, this quiet offering. Author Warren Wiersbe talks about the different names of Jesus because he has lots of names and titles. And he says this, every name he bears is a blessing he shares. So what's the blessing of this title, this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us? Well, first it reminds us of who we're dealing with. We're not just dealing with a teacher, a prophet, a wise man, a guru, a political revolutionary. We are dealing with God himself, God the Son, He is a prophet, but he's more. He is a king, but he is more. He is a savior, but he's more. He's fully God. That's how it works that he's a savior. He doesn't just save one person. He offered himself for all of humanity because he's God on that cross. He's God the Son. And so we see in him, as we come to Christmas, this cute little baby but don't be blinded by the human side of who he is. Don't miss the majesty of this Messiah because he is fully God. And you know, if he comes as just a teacher or prophet, I'm always surprised when people offer that up or say, yeah, I just, he's a good teacher. I find him crushing as a teacher. I mean, go read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Just one of those commands is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Good luck with that, right? The Sermon on the Mount and the other teaching of Jesus, I think, pushes us, drives us to the cross of Jesus, to the sacrificial, saving work of Jesus. His ethical standards, yes, they're absolutely top-notch, but as sinners, we don't walk there. We don't live there. We need the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as a gift. That's the good news. Some have said Emmanuel is the gospel in a word. God with us. God for us. It doesn't just tell us who he is. It tells us that he is with us, that we can have comfort in that. No matter what we face. I mean, you look at that Christmas story as as Matt talked about, as I touched on a little bit, as you, if you watch the movie, I mean, Mary and Joseph were called to very difficult courses of life. 
You know, years ago, there was this tract. I don't know if they still have it around. It's like, um, God loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life. And, and it was a good tract and helped a lot of people. Mark Galley said, he goes, a little more accurate might be, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. And he said, I based that on the characters of the Bible. I'd go read them. Joseph and Mary were called to a difficult path. But Emmanuel, God was with them every step of the way. They dealt with a jealous king. They dealt with her pregnancy and a census. They dealt with the, the gossip and the whispers of townspeople around them. But there is comfort that no matter what we're called to, no matter what difficulty we find ourselves in, no matter what challenges we face, that God is with us. And so, I want you to think about the fact that, that Joseph was never alone. He probably felt very alone. Felt like Mary betrayed him until he got that visit from the angel. But God is with us, and we are never alone. When I used to work the suicide line for several years, people would call me, and part of what drove them to thinking about taking their own life was the fact that they felt so alone. But we are never alone. Emmanuel, God is with us no matter what we face. And if you can understand that, whatever our journey looks like, whether it's a difficult diagnosis, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it's financial challenges, whatever our life looks like at this moment, God is with you. He is walking beside you. And when we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that life shouts that you are loved and that you matter. It shouts that. Has anybody else died for you? Most of us can't come up with anyone. Maybe a few can. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus, before he leaves, says to his closest disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And while Jesus does not always explain our situations and our challenges and our difficulties. He always walks with us through them. He sees us. I was reading a book, and um, this uh, author compiles true stories from different people, and they would submit them. And this mother named Rhonda, she had four boys, and her son Chad passed away very quickly, uh, obviously very, very painful for the family, and it was fairly close to Christmas. And here she was heartbroken at the loss of her son, but she wanted to still have a good Christmas for her other three sons. And she went online and she tried to, she wanted to get a gift that she thought Chad would buy for his brothers. And he was kind of eclectic, she said, and, and she happened to stumble on these old Coca-Cola crates. And she said, I know that doesn't sound like much, but it's something Chad would get his brothers. And so she called up the seller and, and wanted to buy these three crates, but they had already been sold. He said, but I've got some other ones. I can send you those. So she bought these, these other crates. It wasn't what she wanted first, but, but it was still the Coca-Cola crates. And she thought Chad would like that. She gets them in the mail, and she opens them up, and, and she looks at the first one, and, and these crates had numbers on them. She didn't really know that. And, and the first one, she says, it says 77. She goes, oh, well... 
My son Jeff was born in 77. I'll give that one to him. That's kind of fun. She grabs the next crate out, and, and, it's, and it says 82. And she goes, well, Jeremy was born in 82. I'll give that one to Jeremy. And she goes, really? And she turns around the, the third box, and it says 81. And she goes, well, that's when Brent was born. And she just kind of leaned back, and she's like, Lord, do you, you see me? My pain. The author, um, Squire Rushnell, calls these kinds of moments God winks. And I love that term. I think most of us who are in the faith, we have those moments where God winks at us, where he says, I see you. I care for you. I am Emmanuel. I am walking with you in this. Reading about a man named Claire, that's not... A typical guy's name, but his name was Clary. He was a soldier. He was uh, in the Air Force. This is during World War II. And he and several of his guys, there were like five of them, and they went to this little diner on Christmas Eve, and they were about to be deployed the next day. They were going to go to the European theater and have to fight against the Nazis. And Claire's there with his buddies, and they're talking to this waitress who's real friendly. Her name is Sally, and, and they strike up a conversation with her, and she tells them that her fiancé is already in Europe, already fighting. And she says, you know what? I'd love to have you, I'd love to give you a picture. She pulls out a picture of herself. She said, would you give this to my fiancé um, if you run across him? And they all kind of were like, really? Like, we're going to run into this guy? And, but she got pulled away. And they had to leave pretty quickly, so they never even got his name. Now, they get deployed. They're in Europe, and Claire was in his uh, B-17, and he got shot down over the Netherlands, and he was you know, bombing the German military that was there. And he gets shot down. He gets captured by the Germans. He's actually at one point in the road, and they have a firing squad in front of him. And they, you know, there's the German guy is saying, the officer is saying, get ready. And they're about to shoot him. That's going to be the next command. And these three Dutch girls run out and they say, stop, stop, don't shoot him. He's not British, he's a Yank. He's like, internally, he's like, what, what does that matter? We're both fighting the Germans. But for some reason, and he had cried out to God for deliverance, for some reason, I think God's the reason, he was spared. He was taken to a POW camp, and he's in this POW camp, and they were in there for months and months, and he was an, a little older guy. Some of the other soldiers were a little younger, so he would try to kind of take other young guys under his wing. And one of the things that was happening in that camp is there was such hopelessness. And there were these electrified fences that every once in a while, one of the American soldiers would just commit suicide, just run into the fence and kill himself because he just had no hope. And Claire heard about this one soldier that they said, he's pretty bad off, he has no hope at all. His name is Ronnie, would you go see him? And so Claire was able to sit down with him, and they're just talking, you know, they enjoy talking to another American. Here they are in this Nazi POW camp. And they're talking about life back home. And he reaches in to pull out a picture of his wife to show this soldier, you know, who his wife is, because he'd been talking about his family. 
And when he pulled it out accidentally, that waitress's picture that he had stuck in his wallet almost a year before, because this is Christmas Eve one year later, fell out of his wallet. And Ronnie said, where'd you get that picture? He said, oh, that was a waitress that wanted me to take it to her fiance if I ran into him, but she went away and I didn't even get his name. He said, that's my fiance. And here was this hopeless, suicidal American soldier behind enemy lines. And Claire said, you know what? God sees you. He's here with you. You know what that is? That's, that's Emmanuel. God with us. Whatever you face, whatever you're going through. And maybe it's not that dramatic, but how have you experienced Jesus as Emmanuel in your life lately? Have you had moments? Have you had God winks? Have you had some answered prayers? And so the big idea this morning is this. The greatest gift of Christmas is Jesus himself. The greatest gift of Christmas is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. We're grateful for this time together. We're grateful for this weekend. Lord, I just pray that each person here would experience your forgiveness of sins that you offer. Lord, I pray that they would experience a strong sense of your presence in their life. Whether things are just rolling along right now or whether this is a time of great difficulty. Lord, we thank you and celebrate that you are our Emmanuel, that you are with us no matter what. This is our prayer in the powerful name of all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.